Good morning. Yeah. No, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Good morning. My name is Alex. And I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. And I do have some ability still to stop nonsense. <laughs> it's good to, good to see that. So today's the third Sunday in our new series. Is it still new? On the Apostles' Creed. We're working our way through this historic summary of the Christian faith. And as we've reflected on the Creed recently, we have been listening to it rather than saying it together. And this morning, Graham Dennis is going to come up and read it for us. So come on up, Graham. I think your dad's coming up with you. That's perfect. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is, is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you, Graham. So what is a creed? Well, we get the word creed from the Latin word for belief. So a creed is a summary of what we believe, the essentials of our belief. And the Apostles' Creed wasn't actually written by the apostles, who were the 12 disciples of Jesus and a few others. Now, it's called the Apostles' Creed because it's what the apostles taught. So this morning, we come to the beginning of the second part of the creed. As Graham read it for us, I believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father's only Son and our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. For the past couple of weeks, we've explored what the creed says about God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But even though God the Father comes first in the creed, Jesus takes up its largest part. Jesus is at the heart of our faith, and he's at the heart of the creed as well. It makes sense. There's a movement in these opening lines that you may have picked up on, right? We talked about how the creed tells a story. It seems like it's propositions, but in fact, there's a narrative. We started with God the Father Almighty. God Almighty, El Shaddai is the Hebrew name for that. So he's big, cosmic, enormous, transcendent, and yet still our parent, still running to embrace us as his children. And then he's creator of heaven and earth. And that last word that we saw last week, that last word, earth, is where we're headed next. It's this downward trajectory the creed enters into at this point. 
So for the next five weeks, we're going to be unpacking what it means to believe in Jesus. Today, we'll focus on the Lordship of Christ. So let's pray before we read from Scripture. Dear God, help us to see your glory more and more, to grasp your grace and truth in Jesus. Come to us, Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the word. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, there should really be a footnote at the end of verse 20 there where it says God's Messiah because often you may know that we get footnotes in some translations of the Bible when there's a word from another language. And the New Testament was written in Greek, but Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one or chosen one. It was a word that designated the coming king and it points to the lordship of Jesus. And the Greek word for Messiah is Christos. So we should really, when we say Jesus Christ, technically we should really say Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Sometimes I think when we're rushing through whatever it might be, a Bible study, a sermon, we say Jesus Christ. It's almost like Jesus is Mr. Christ, like Christ is the last name of Jesus. But no, Christ is a title. It means Messiah. Our second reading is from John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This also is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a friend of mine this week posted a screenshot of Jesus on social media. It was from an ad that an algorithm had targeted to him to his surprise and amusement because he's not a Christian. It was an ad trying to get you to buy a portrait of your loved one 
with a handsome, smiling Jesus standing behind him or her, looking a lot like a young Tom Cruise, I think. <laughs> a, little, a little furrier in the face, perhaps, but uh, good-looking Jesus, to be sure. So here we have Jesus and your loved one portrayed wearing white gowns, and that seems to be a sign there in heaven, and doing pretty well. So my friend is not a Christian, as I said, and clearly his friends aren't either because there were a lot of comments about politics and about the Republican Party and American evangelicalism. And um, I piped up and said that I thought he would look good with Jesus, to which we got into, he, he replied, well, you know, maybe the teachings of Jesus, but I'm not sure about the people who follow Jesus today. So we'll talk more about that later, but this question that Jesus asks, who do you say I am, is a question that is really relevant for our lives as Christians, if that's where you find yourself today. But it's also a question that, that other people sometimes find compelling as well. The truth is that we're not entirely sure. As a society, and even within the church, we have different ideas about who Jesus is. Some interesting news out of the U.S. this past week. Since 2013, a group called Lifeway has been doing surveys of what people believe, in-depth theological surveys, and this year's results came in. And there's a trend. You know, over the past decade, the North American view of God keeps shifting and it's lining up less and less what the Bible says. That's why the early church developed a creed in the first place in order to provide us with a map, a guide. Now, this isn't something for us to moan about as Christians. Sometimes I'll admit that I do that. People talk about biblical literacy and, of course, we'd like people to know more, to know better, but I think it's helpful, more helpful, to think of it as an opening. It can lead to a conversation. And at Courtright, we want to start by focusing on Jesus, and then we want to share the good news of who he really is with others. And that means seeing him clearly, not as we might want to see him, not as those who see him wrongly or with their own wrong ideas mixed in might see him. And that's what doctrine is for. Doctrine is conducive to health. It's right belief. It's guidance. And the picture we have of God is so important. It affects how we live out our faiths. The results of this survey that was done by this group Lifeway show that more and more Christians, among other things, believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but that he was not God. And that number just over the last decade, has gone from 30% of Christians to 45%. And, and this is a survey of, of people who would call themselves evangelical Christians, who are more conservative theologically is, is the, uh, the typical understanding of that. So it's people who you would not expect that drift to have happened with. So we know Jesus is the teacher and founder of Christianity, right? And we have that in common with other isms out there, right? Marxism or Buddhism, for example, Darwinism or Confucianism, they're all named after their founders. 
But Christianity is the only ism, is the only movement or school of belief that claims that its founder, Jesus Christ, is no longer dead, but that he's living, risen from the dead. So Karl Marx is dead. No Marxist would ever deny that. Buddha, Darwin, Confucius, all of them are dead, even though their teachings live on. So Christianity is unique in that sense. And for Christians, the life and the person of Jesus are inseparable from his message. And the early followers of Jesus would express their faith by saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus was not just the founder of Christianity. We believe he's alive, that he's Lord of the universe and Lord of our lives, that he's with us here this morning. And so today we're going to consider the lordship of Jesus in four parts. First of all, that he is Lord of the storm. Secondly, that he's Lord of all, Lord of everything. And third, that he's Lord of holiness. And finally, that he's Lord of lowliness. So in John 6, we have this picture of Jesus as Lord of the storm. There are different versions of Jesus encountering the disciples in a storm in the different Gospels. All of them highlight that he's sovereign over the storm. Here the disciples see Jesus walking towards them on the water. But he's not just walking on the water. He's walking through a storm as well. And it helps to understand that in the ancient world, the storm and the sea stood for something. They represented the chaos and the danger of people's lives. The sea was a symbol that the world was filled with uncontrollable forces, forces that could overwhelm you. Now, you can rely on the land, right? We're all on land right now. We don't even think about it. It's firm beneath our feet. But at sea, there's always a danger that what you're on will open up and swallow you up. My uncle Alec was a fisherman on the island of Lewis in the northwest of Scotland, the Outer Hebrides. That's where the MacLeods come from. He once called the ocean a terrible beauty when I was staying with them the summer when I turned 16. On land, you can see what's coming. But the sea is filled with forces that can suddenly destroy you. And our lives are also filled with forces like that. Here in John 6, Jesus shows his power over the storm. He's not fighting against the stormy sea. He's actually strolling across it. He's Lord of the storm. He controls it. He rules it. Now, some of you are dealing with storms these days. Maybe you feel like the uncertainty, the chaos in your life right now could overwhelm you. But this text says that it doesn't matter how powerful the storms in your life may be. Jesus is with you through them. He meets you in them, and then he brings you to the other side. But God's power isn't like the storm. It's not like equal power against equal power, like in a Marvel movie with superheroes fighting each other. No, nature's power is only on loan from God. We saw that last week as we considered God as creator of heaven and earth. When the disciples take Jesus into the boat, they immediately reach the safety of the shore towards which they were heading. 
And so Jesus says to them and to us, I am Lord of the storm. And if you take refuge in me, there's no force in the world that can uproot you. Nothing can destroy you. In me and only in me, ultimately, are you safe. But that's not enough. Of course, if you're a Christian, you want Jesus in your boat. Look at the power he has. But there's even more. To call him Lord means he's not just Lord of the storm. It means he's Lord of all, Lord of everything. In verse 20, Jesus says, it is I. Now, the translation there isn't quite right. Literally, he says, I am, ego emi in the Greek. Now, what does that mean? Of course, he is, right? He's, he's right there coming towards them. Why would he say that? Why would he say, I am? To be is just is what we are. Why would you comment on it? Well, because it takes us back in the Bible. In Exodus 3, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he called himself I Am. It's the personal name for God, the name Yahweh. So Jesus is saying that he himself here is God. He says, I am God. I am the personal God. I am the transcendent God. I am the omnipotent God. I am the creator of heaven and earth. He's not just saying, I'm powerful enough, so let me into your life so that I can help you. He's saying, I am the ultimate Lord. Let me be everything to you. He's saying, it's all or nothing with me. I'm not like an amulet. You can't hang me on the wall in the corner of your favorite room. Most people like Jesus. This is my experience. If you just talk about Jesus, his teachings... They're fine with that, but they have a harder time accepting that he's God. When Jesus talks about forgiveness, we love that. The Sermon on the Mount, amazing, until you dig into it. But Jesus can only forgive, he can only teach like he does because of who he is, because he is the very power behind forgiveness. He's the ultimate source of it. He doesn't just walk on water here. He claims the divine name. He's not negotiable. He's everything. He's either at the center of your life, or if you're honest, he's nothing at all. Earlier in the service, we sang Faithful One, and every time I hear that song, I think of a friend and colleague of mine from the church I served in Toronto, this is about 15 years ago. Um, no, no more than that, 20, 20 years ago. He and his wife had just had a baby and she was born with a rare chromosomal disorder. Her heart was malformed, her lungs didn't work. She had seven or eight surgeries in her first year of life. Later, she was diagnosed with severe autism. And there was one service where he was at the piano leading us. And he gave an introduction to that song, Faithful One. He said, you may not know it yet, but you need Jesus to be Lord of all in your life. And we're going to sing that 
But I want to invite you, as you sing this song, to ask God to be, to truly be your rock of peace. You need that now in order to be ready for the storms that will come. He said, I now know what that's like. Things you thought would never happen to you do happen, and you are helpless. And you will not be up to the task of navigating through all those storms. Hilary Mantel died this week. She was one of our great novelists in the English language. She wrote a trilogy on Thomas Cromwell. In the third book in that trilogy, she wrote, This is what life does for you in the end. It arranges a fight you cannot win. You think you're a fighter? A fight will come that you cannot win. Jesus says, I will go ahead of you into that storm. The third point about the lordship of Jesus is that he's the holy Lord. They saw Jesus walking on the water, their friend, their rabbi, their master, and they were terrified. They were scared like they hadn't been before. They were more terrified now than when they were in the middle of the storm. Why is that? Well, because they suddenly realized in that moment that Jesus was unlike anything they'd ever experienced. He was completely beyond them, more than they had thought, more than they had imagined. Moses at the burning bush fell on his face before the fire of a holy God. And so here on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee, the holiness of Jesus was revealed to the disciples in the fury of that storm. When we get close to God, when we're truly open to God, we begin to realize that the way we've been living is wrong, simply wrong. And we are amazed by his perfect holiness. And so I think there's a storm that's going on in the heart of the disciples here as well, maybe even more than out over the sea. We have this dilemma too. We need the glory of God, his substance, his weight, his significance. But we still want to be in control of our lives, right? We have plans. When life storms show us that we need God, and when we start to get near to Jesus, a spiritual storm blows up within us. And some of us are offended by this idea that our hearts are full of darkness, are corrupt, that we are lost in our sinfulness, our selfishness. Others of us, well, we read the Bible and we see how loving and humble and kind Jesus is and, and we start to sink. We think we can't possibly live up to that. It's a question of guilt. It's a storm of despair knowing how, fall, how far we fall short of that. How do you get through, whether it's disbelief on the one hand or doubt that we could be, ever be good enough? Well, Jesus says, he simply says, look to me. He says, don't be afraid. In the original, it literally says, I am no fear. 
In the Old Testament, when God presents himself as Yahweh, when he says, I am, there's always fear. And if people come close to God, they die. But here the message is, I am, so don't be afraid. Jesus is saying, my holiness is no longer a threat to you. God's holy fire, his otherness, his perfection, his weight, has become good news for us through Jesus Christ. And that's because God poured himself out. He came down. And so Jesus is also the Lord of lowliness. The creed says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So why does the conception of Jesus come up here? Sometimes on social media, I see pictures of newborn babies in the hospital. But one thing you'll never see is a picture of conception. Pretty hard to capture that. Why not start with the birth of Jesus here in the Creed, right? Christmas, everyone loves Christmas. It's almost October, so you know the staff at Stone Road Mall are getting those boxes out. Pumpkin spice lattes have a shelf life. Then comes Christmas. Well, conception may be a mystery to us, but it's also the beginning of life. You have an embryo, you know how it goes. An embryo that grows into a baby. And Jesus went through that slow process like any other human being. But unlike any other human, the Holy Spirit was the source of his life. And this is the first time the spirits showed up in the creed. We've had, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ, but now the Holy Spirit sneaks in. It's like the work of the Spirit is in parallel to the idea of conception. It's hidden away. It's deep on the inside. I once heard the Holy Spirit described as the shy member of the Trinity. I like that. The Spirit's role is to point away from himself to Jesus. So the Spirit's shy. The Spirit is humble and quiet for the most part. He grows new things in our lives, but he does not grab the spotlight. When we look to him, he steps back and says, look at Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit, the Father caused the Son to be conceived silently, mysteriously, and locally in one place at one time. After the Spirit comes Mary. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Mary is the only person mentioned in the creed outside of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that gives us an idea of her significance. God shows us who he is by choosing Mary to be the greatest example of faith in the Bible. Once again, God surprises us. At a time in history when mothers and women in general had no power, were not highly regarded. Mary is not just a surrogate mother here. God doesn't just use her to carry the baby. He makes her a key player in the story. There is not a single male leader mentioned in the creed, no great Christian teacher or theologian. It's Mary. It's not Paul or Peter. She was the one who was chosen. For any of us right now who doubt our place in life, who have regrets, who wonder if we amount to anything at all, who don't think God has favored us. 
God says through Mary that he is with you. You may think of yourself as someone who has failed over and over, someone who is inadequate. God says, like I chose Mary, I have chosen you. He says the first will be last and the last will be first. He enters the lives of those who are not among the rich and the powerful. The question is, are we open to his purposes today? Will we trust him? Mary did, and the most amazing things happened. In John 1, we read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. But if God really wanted to get his word out, his message to all the nations, why a baby, especially one born into poverty, one born at the margins of the Roman Empire? It makes no sense. If it was about glory, then Jesus should have been born into wealth and privilege in Rome, the greatest city in the world, or in Athens, its intellectual capital. But no, God wanted to show that his power and his glory are made perfect in weakness. And it doesn't get any weaker than this. From conception to birth, those were nine really unproductive months for Jesus. But God sent his son anyway to live like us, to be as vulnerable as a baby, and to experience all the ups and downs, the brokenness, the pleasures and disappointments of life that we do. Did you know over 70% of Canadians believe in God, but they don't believe he's relevant to what they're going through? If he's there, he's distant, he's not involved. You can think back to that picture of Jesus that my friend posted on social media. How would the people in your life who are not Christians describe Jesus? On Monday, I watched the funeral service for Queen Elizabeth. So much ceremony, right? So many people tuning in. Later that day, I was downtown walking through St. George's Square to meet Judith at the train station. And that's right where I was when I heard that the Queen had died. I told that story two weeks ago in my sermon. And as I was walking through this time, it hit me. Here I was in the central square of the city of Guelph, the royal city, we call it, right? And that square is named after a guy named George. Do you know who St. George was? Right. George, the patron saint of England and the United Kingdom. Except George wasn't English. Far from it. He was Middle Eastern from what today is Turkey. 1,500 years ago, George was a soldier in the army of the Roman Empire. And he was killed for refusing to declare that Caesar was Lord. Instead, he said, no, that's not true. Only Jesus is Lord. And they executed him for it. That's where real power lies. We look at the powerful people of the world. We look at the empires of the world, the now much diminished, even extinct British Empire. We look at the American Empire, if you want to call it that. We look at powerful states rising and those who rule them. And these powerful people captivate us. They command our attention. But Jesus says, don't look over there. Don't let that distract you. These things will not last. 
He says, look to me and you will have eternal life. Did Jesus walk through every storm? No. There's one storm he did not walk through. In Luke 9, when he asked the disciples, who do you say I am? Peter calls him the Messiah, but then Jesus goes on to say, he must suffer. He says that he was going to be rejected and killed. He's saying, as he did to the disciples, he's saying to us that he was willing to go into the ultimate storm, to be rejected, to be killed, so that we could come through every storm in our lives. He's not only a Lord, he's a Savior for us. He's even a substitute. Every other Lord, every other founder of every movement tells you what you have to do, how you must live, keep calm and carry on, or whatever the mantra is. Something you must attain, a standard. They leave it up to you to make something of your life. But Jesus comes and he lives the life we should have lived and he dies the death we should have died and he's with us forever. Do you understand Jesus as the one who went into the storm for you? He went down in the greatest storm so that you and I can walk through every other storm. As Lord of our lives, Jesus can do what we can't. And so I invite you, later today, this week, to pray a simple prayer to God. Maybe it's a prayer you've not prayed before. Maybe it's a prayer that's prayed differently in whatever circumstance you're facing today. But simply to pray, Lord Jesus, I can't do this, but you can He promises to meet us when we acknowledge him, look to him, follow him as Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are Lord of everything. And we thank you that you have come close to us. We thank you that you were conceived and born, that you entered into our lives and that you were willing to go into the greatest storm for us. I pray that, that we would know you in our lives each day as you walk with us. I pray that we would trust you in whatever we're facing right now. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.